In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Growing up, what was your mother's stance on eating? Did you come from a clean-your-plate household? Did you come from a household where your mom was a short-order cook and prepared different things for everybody at every meal for everyone? I'm sure I'm not the only person who's had to sit at the kitchen table for a long time because there was something on the plate I wasn't going to finish and I wasn't going to be allowed to get up until it was gone. We always told our kids, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Now as adults, I know that we, sh we know that we should be thankful for having food consistently in our lives. It's a privilege. Not everybody has it. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now when we last saw Elisha, he was having a mantle thrown on him by Elijah. Elijah had gotten off the mountain after he'd been told to go anoint a new king in Israel and a new king in Aram. Now Aram is the kingdom that's centered on Syria, with Damascus as its capital. And after a short time of additional ministry, Elijah goes up to heaven. Elisha's the one person who gets to see it, and he cries out as he's going, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, because he's taken up to heaven. And Elisha saw him no more. And then Elisha becomes the prophet in Israel. Now Naaman is a mighty warrior, but he has leprosy. And a girl that he captured when he was raiding Israel tells his wife, now listen, if we were back home, we have a prophet there that could heal him for sure. Naaman's probably pretty desperate at this point. Leprosy is incurable. He tells his king, his king writes a letter to the king of Israel explaining the situation and asking for the king of Israel to make sure the general's healed. So he takes it to the king. And what does the king do when he reads it? Tears his clothing. Why does he tear his clothing? Am I God to give death or life? And this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He thinks the Aramean king is looking for an excuse for war. And he feels powerless. In our modern context, it's like saying that your neighbor can't join a particular group and it needs to be denazified. Right? And the only way that the king's going to be able to do it is to launch an invasion. Or at least that's what the king of Israel fears. Right? If he went to the president of the United States and says, hey, I'm sick, heal me, what would his response be? Get thee to a physician, right? It's the same thing. But when Elisha hears about it, he sends a message to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn there's a prophet in Israel. King, Go ahead and send him to me. The Arameans have to learn that there's a God and a prophet here. Naaman goes, and when he arrives, Elisha doesn't even come out to see him himself. He sends a messenger. Tells him to go and dip in the river Jordan seven times and he'll be healed. This brave warrior who won many battles, who crossed into an enemy kingdom for a cure says, No, I'm not going to do that. I thought that the prophet would come out and say some words and wave his arms about and it would be done. But he's not even showing himself to me. 
Don't we have better rivers in Damascus? Aren't they cleaner? Aren't they nicer? Why is he insulting me this way? And Naaman's ready to go home. But his servants remind him that if he'd been asked to do a great deed, right? Go defeat an enemy. Go on a quest to go and go find something. He would have gone and done it without hesitation. And they say, just go and do it. Isn't washing yourself seven times easier? So he humbles himself and goes to the River Jordan and is healed. It says his skin is like that of a young man. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you restored me to health. You brought me up, O Lord, from the dead. You restored my life to me as I was going down to the grave. David knows about this. He's been anointed God's leader. And he's made mistakes and he's felt the consequences of those mistakes. For his wrath, David writes, endures but the twinkling of an eye and his favor for a lifetime. David knows that God is good and his mercy endures forever. That when he calls out to God, he will be forgiven. And that God will turn my wailing into dancing. He put off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Now Solomon, and later the birds, like to borrow this line from David, his dad. Solomon writes, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. God provides both. I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. Jesus had sent out 70 apostles, 70 others to go out and proclaim, the kingdom of God is here. Why 70? We know that the 12 apostles have a symbolic link, right, with the 12 tribes of Israel. But why 70? In Genesis 10, there's talk of the descendants of Noah, who would go out and found the other nations of the world. You want to guess how many are mentioned? Seventy. Jesus is giving a hint to those who understand that the message of the new kingdom, that it was here, would extend beyond the old order, out to the whole world. He sent them out by twos, just like the apostles, to establish their witness. Because Deuteronomy says that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is established. He gave them similar instructions to the apostles, right? Go out simply. Don't take extra things. Stay in the first hospitable house you come to. Don't move around. Don't jump from house to house looking for better places to stay. Eat what you're served, no matter what it is. Sound familiar? And whether the town accepts your message or rejects it, at the end you tell them the same thing. The kingdom of God has come near. And they all came back and gave powerful reports. And that's when Jesus says, I've seen Satan fall like, from heaven like a flash of lightning. I think he wants to show them that the power, has, the power of Satan in the world is limited. And the power God has given them. And commentators will tell you it's the same power that was once reserved for God and Jesus has been given to them. The power to deal directly with the powers of the world. Jesus is quick to tell them that they have God's power and protection, but it's not given to them for their own aggrandizement. No, they should be more excited that their name is in the Lamb's Book of Life than in the power to deal with evil spirits. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Now last week we read as Paul told the church to live in Christ. To grow in love and peace and joy and not to quarrel with one another. 
And here he says, listen, when someone does one of those things we were talking about, when they're quarreling, when they're drunk, when there's idolatry, restore them with gentleness. Why with gentleness? Because if we come at restoration without love and without gentleness, we let our own pride into the picture, right? We're like the way the world likes to portray the church. We're restoring you, you vile sinner. You get to come back, but be careful. No. Jesus talks about this, right? I mean, I don't mean to to spoil my sermon for the end of October, but Jesus there tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And when the Pharisee is praying, he reminds God of how good he is, what all he's done, and he's thankful that he's not a horrible sinner like these other people standing around him. And the tax collector, and tax collectors back then were like just as much as we like tax collectors today, the tax collector was beating his breast and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says this, I tell you, the man who went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul writes to bear one another's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. We're called to love each other, to bear each other's burdens, but to do so in grace and humility, knowing that the next time restoration is needed, it could be us that needs restoring. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbors, will become a cause for pride. We have to remember that at the end of the day, we can only fully understand what we're going through, what we can handle our own experiences, and what our gifts are. We're called to bear each other's burdens in love, but in bearing, we don't judge each other based on what we're doing for God. Or else we end up like the Pharisee. Hey God, you know I'm doing better than... I mean, how can they say they love you and think? How can they say they love you and not do the things I'm doing? And Paul says that sort of thinking leads to pride. The same pride that Jesus was warning against. We're called to sow by the Spirit. And by doing so, we reap eternal life by the Spirit. Paul writes, So then, whenever we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially of those of the family of faith. Our calling is to spread God's love to everyone and to work for the good of everyone. In Paul's absence, the Galatians have been dealing with those who want to place restrictions on their life in Christ. And Paul's telling them, no, don't do that. They're not living to the standards they want to hold you to. But they want to be able to boast in having added you to their numbers. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. We're called to leave aside the world and serve Christ alone. And through Christ, we're called to love the world and our brothers and sisters. Amen.